Hey, everybody. Welcome to No One Told Me, where we believe hindsight is everything. My name is Callie, and every week we take experiences and stories, your experiences and stories, and we use them to inform and equip those who are coming behind us. See, the goal is for you to feel a little less alone in whatever season you're walking through. Now, this conversation in particular, you know, I finish most interviews and I'm like, man, that was good. I'm better for having recorded that. I'm confident you're going to be better for having listened to it. And then there are some that I don't, right? Like those are locked away. We don't even, we don't even publish those. But this one with our friend, Bethany Ricks, who we heard from a couple months ago, talking about a completely different season of her life. uh, We brought her back because at the end of that conversation, we just barely touched, just barely grazed the topic of leadership. And the feedback I got from that conversation, I knew I had to have Bethany back. So I reached out, we were able to schedule it. And this conversation, guys, this recording, I even thought to myself, I have to circle back and listen to this for my benefit, because it was so rich. I mean, the amount of times you'll hear a little bit of like, silence, a little like longer gaps than usual, because I'm just I'm processing because it's so good. It's just things that I want to store away. And here's the goal of this episode. There are so many young leaders who listen. Um, I've talked, I've had conversations with so many of you. I have, I have many of you in my own life, like in my community groups, my neighbors, um, and you're trying to figure out the work world. You're trying to navigate the politics of it. You're trying to navigate, how do I, um, how can I be aggressive, but not too aggressive? How can I move up, but not too fast? How can I take a posture of learning, but still make it clear that I want to grow into something new? There's just all these nuances that you don't know about until you're in the workplace. But here's what I love about Bethany. She didn't make it just about the workplace. She made it about home too, because we have to be fully present in both, right? It's really hard to show up halfway in either arena. So what does it look like? What does it look like when there's a million opinions coming at you? What does it look like when you have a drive, but you have to you have to balance it a little bit, you have to figure out kind of the rooms that you need to be at and in and maybe the rooms you're not ready for. That's hard. But lucky for you, we talked about it today. I cannot wait for you all to hear this conversation with Bethany Ricks. Bethany, I'm so happy to have you back for another round. I, this was, you jumped in fast with me, which I'm so grateful for. We finished our last conversation. I think it was maybe the last like seven minutes, Bethany, where we just briefly talked about leadership and the amount of feedback I got on the whole episode. And I thought I'm going to have to have her come back. And I'm here. (laughs) Before we get into that, we were just talking about content. And I was just celebrating yours because on your personal Instagram and even over on the Instagram with Jesus led Bible fed, you have have just had some sharp and good content that's like relatable and also super shareable, which is like the unicorn of content, right? Like... I like to think of myself as a unicorn. Thank you very much. <laughs> but what I love and what I, I wanted to get into, I literally paused our conversation because I was like, Bethany, I got to hit record because what I'm about to ask you, I want to remember the answer and I want others to hear it. So you left a job in HR, right? Like the yes. top of your game. And now you're in this creative space Yes, where it's like all roads are open at this point. What's the difference in how you're flexing a completely different muscle where you're just sitting down and thinking, what am I going to write about today? How have you kind of filled a whole different cup in this new season? 
because I get to show up unapologetically as myself every day. And I'm the one who sets the guardrails. I'm the one who sets the boundaries. And so that allows me to move very freely. And my content is based off of what I'm feeling or what the people around me are feeling. And there's a lot of freedom in that. And so I let myself feel and then I respond and react to that. And I don't necessarily have to think about the corporate ripple effect. Oh, Bethany, that's, uh, I just, I knew it. I needed to hit record because I just related, like, I was just having a conversation this morning of like the higher you get in leadership, right? The more accountable you are Yes. for not just what you're doing within the walls of where you work, but what you're doing outside of that space as well. Yeah. Like there's always, you said a ripple, there's always, always a ripple, a ripple, right? Yeah, it does. And so people will probably resonate with what I'm about to say. What happens when you um, grow in your career is it's not that you necessarily have a problem with making the decisions. You sometimes people become indecisive because they can't anticipate what is going to happen after the decision is made. Most people can make a decision. They know what they want to do. What they can't figure out is, what is the echo that will follow my yes, my no, my unsure, my we need to do X, Y, or Z? And that is what paralyzes and cripples people. I mean, because you start thinking about what are, what conversations are going to come out of this, good and bad, right? Yes. Like, going to feel? What are the expectations that are going to come after the fact? What are the things that I didn't anticipate? What are the things that I didn't see? All of that leads into the indecisive decision-making that people run into. And the more influence you have, the more people who are impacted by your decision, that starts to weigh you down. Leadership comes with pressure. And I think it's a healthy pressure at times, right? Like it's a good pressure because pressure is a privilege. Like as you go higher, you're going to feel more pressure to a degree. But do you think as a leader who's at the top of your game, can you hold both? Can you hold the pressure and the accountability and what's going to come and a little bit of freedom with, you know, what you might do outside of that role to fulfill other areas of your life? Am I making sense? How, how do you hold both? You, you have know? to you have to have a certain level of certainty of who you are before people tell you. So what you stand for, you have to uh, understand the power behind your leadership voice. You have to be willing to operate with a level of humility, not turn your right into righteousness. All of those things will allow you to operate within both spaces. But what helped me survive so long is boundaries. I, I had very clear sets of boundaries based off of the type of job that I had and the things that gave me reprieve. What, what did those boundaries look like? So, for example, for me, I was not friends with the people who I worked with. I was friendly. I was kind. But I could not have close friendships with the people who I worked with because at any point in time, I could be having a very, very difficult conversation and that just muddied the water. So I very early on in my career had to set that boundary for myself. That allowed me to be effective in my job and in my role. Again, I was friendly and I was kind, but I really didn't do uh, a lot of hanging out and mingling outside of the workplace. Do you think that gave you a bad rap at times? Absolutely. But I knew who I was. So this gets back to my point. I knew who I was. I knew what I stood for. I knew the type of person I was. And there were times where... 
I didn't feel the need to defend myself. And there were other times where I didn't need to defend myself because the perception was way off. Do you think it impacted how people received your feedback? Because in the position you were in, it is riddled with hard conversations, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, HR, in, if you anyone knows, no matter what job you have, on in what sector, if HR sends you an email and wants to meet with you, chances are good. This is not going to go well, right? So yeah. was it that surety in who yourself, that you, of who you were, that you were just like, you can think what you need to think, I have a job to do. How did you get to a point where that did not impact the job you were supposed to be doing? Communication is key. And so I was aware of the perceptions and I chose when and how to manage the perceptions. And you don't necessarily have to approach difficult conversations in a stern way. And when you lead with empathy and when you lead with humility, that tends to break down the barriers of tough conversations. Mm, That's so good. A lot of times I was the bridge between a leader and a difficult decision. So I was a lot of times the go-between, especially as I started when I got higher up into my career, more so in the executive spaces, I was more of a mediator. And so you you would be surprised what a softer tone mm. does and what a meeting people where they are. And what I mean by that is sharing a personal experience, sharing being okay with sharing where you failed, that goes a long way. And not doing it in a gotcha kind of way, but in a, this is a safe space and I'm here to help you type of way. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. Saying, hey, I did that. I was in the same space. I made the same mistake, especially when you're working with young leaders. But I've heard the phrase a lot of, you don't have to like me, but you have to respect me. Not necessarily true. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you. I was so curious, like what your take is, because the leadership, the kind of leadership you're talking about, it seems like these two things kind of go together. Like we don't have to be best friends, but it's it's helpful if we do like and respect each other. You know, it is, it is very helpful. Now, it depends on how you're talking about respect in the workplace. I mean, there there are policies and there are rules, and even in everyday life, like you can't go out cussing people out and call it like. Well, that's, some people can, you know, some people think they have the license. But, to but you be held responsible to that, yeah. right? Like, not respond. you will be held accountable to that. But this assumption that because you're a leader, you don't have to earn respect. You don't have to show up authentically. You don't have to create this pattern that warrants a quote-unquote type of loyalty in a in mutual honesty and mutual respect etc that like that has to happen and it happens over time because generally if the leaders who I have advised over my 20 years leaders who walk in and feel as though they deserve something because of a title no no what tends to happen is you see people like and even if you're a friend Who's like that? You you don't keep relationships for very long. You, they People tend to last for about 24 months or less. This is in business partnerships. This is in friendships. Any sort of anyone who is in close proximity to you. If you are someone who goes, well, you know, you should feel honored to be here because I'm X, Y, and Z, 24 months or less. Mm. If you operate as though some people are orbiting around you, 
24 months or less. And if they are lasting longer than that, and that's how you lead, it is generally because there is a monetary benefit for them, or you are in such a position of significant power that they can't leave. And I know that it's hard to hear, even if you're a person who is in that type of situation, you're probably like, oh my gosh, she's right. But that's, that's generally what I have seen. How do you know? Okay, I think it's easy to identify if you are the person who is in it, like under it, right? How do you know if you are the leader who does that, though? Are there, you know, we, we talked about self-awareness a lot yeah. at the end last time. That is a key leadership trait. What if, what do you think are some of the significant red flags if you're the leader who demands instead of earns? Well, there are a couple of things you can do. So if you're sitting here going, I wonder if I'm that type of leader, you should ask people in your personal life. If you are married, I want you to go to the person who you love. And I want you to ask them, what type of communicator am I? And then I want you to ask them, how do I respond when I hear things that I don't like? Hmm. If you are not married, I want you to ask one of your close friends. And this needs to be someone who is not on your payroll or who does not benefit from you at all. Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. And the, their responses will give you some sort of insight into what type of leader you are. That is so good. I've honestly, and I listen to leadership and read leadership stuff all the time, Bethany. And that's the first time I've heard that. Either a spouse or someone who is not on your payroll and does not stand to benefit from you in that, any way. The other thing you can think about is there's this quote, the real you is the you under pressure. The next time, or if it's happened recently, that you are under significant pressure at home or in a work environment, whatever situation you're in, pay very close attention to how you respond in the moment and how you treat the people around you. Are you a command and control leader? Are you a processor? Are you a leader who goes to the position of leading from behind? So when there's chaos, I'm going to take a step back, going to watch how things play out. Do you go into shame? Some leaders go into shame. They go into shame and blame. And there are a lot of different reasons for why that happens. I, you know, um, and a lot of times I help leaders assess through why they do that. So there are a lot of different things that you can do. And those things, you should write them out and then reflect on them. That's so, I mean, the insightfulness of just the people closest to you when you can't see clearly yourself. And that goes back to why your circle matters so much. And also why your best friends aren't always necessarily on the staff that you're on because it, yep. it, it muddies a little bit, right? But all of the experience that you've had over years in your career, let's let's talk about just just to give people some background of why you can speak to this and the experience that you have. <laughs> Tell us about just starting out and forward. Cause we talked about the, you walking away in the last podcast, but like, let's, let's go to the beginning and kind of how you grew in that and moved forward. The beginning. Uh, <laughs> when were you born? Where were you? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, I'll give the, I'll give the really fast version and then you can ask questions. I went, I'll tell this part for all the parents who are concerned about their kids not figuring it out. I went to college to be a dietitian. <laughs> yeah. And I graduated with a degree in sociology, criminology, and a minor in psychology and English. 
And that's because I changed my major eight times. Can I tell uh, you, you just, it's okay if you don't know what you're doing in college. All right. Let that be fine. a testament. And my career had nothing to do with my degrees. While I was in college, I started working as an HR coordinator as a side gig while I was doing some other internships that were related to my degrees. I was did an internship at a prison and with a judge and blah, 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 blah. And my first job, like real, when I decided like, okay, I'm not going to go to law school. I'm going to kind of just do this HR thing because I have four years of experience. I made a decision to be a third shift HR generalist. The reason I made that decision in my early 20s was because it gave me, I was the only leader with a plant manager with 400 associates in the middle of the night. And from there, out of nowhere, a huge, one of the major retailers called, which was God, right? They called and I jumped into the retail world and was in that space for quite some time. And then got another phone call and this executive had heard about me in the Columbus area and needed someone who was going to shake up the company and think about things differently. And she hired me on to her team and I became an HR director. And then I was promoted to vice president and became the head of HR for a new emerging business for this corporation, which was a subsidiary. And then I was named a year later, the successor and SVP for my former company. And I held that role for almost four years, four or five years. I held that role. And then in 2020, around November, decided to leave. So you did, I mean, that was all within what number of years from beginning to end? That's a 20 year window. Okay. So over those, you know, this 20 year window, you're starting out young 20s and you're thinking what I love is the intention of your thought in that first job of third shift no one wants it right but that means that I am the point person so this is experience that I probably would not get anywhere else it's that intention of how does this play out right yeah sacrifice because everybody was still out kind of partying and doing all the things that you do you know right after college and third shift means you're sleeping all day and I mean, for two and a half years while I was in that job, I saw no one. Mm, that's I mean, that, crazy. But, yeah. But on my resume to say that I was leading, you know, with a plant manager, it was just the two of us. So I learned a lot about crisis management. I learned a lot about communicating and communicating up, communicating down, dealing with issues. I mean, I, I have so many stories. There is something that you learn just by experience that no amount of college education, no amount of anything will teach you. You just have to be in the fire, right? Yeah. I'm a woman and, you know, I had to, I had to learn how to garner respect because they don't care. They don't care about your title. These are blue collar workers, some of which are living paycheck to paycheck. And I I really learned what it means to see someone hmm. and not see someone for your benefit, but to see someone for their benefit and because they're a human being and they deserve it. Do you think that is how you earned that respect? I mean, how did you create that environment where they did respect and want to talk to you? Would talk to them and their stories were safe with me. Because what happens is when you start engaging with people on a professional level, at some point, it, 
they begin to trust you and then they start sharing personal things that sometimes hurt. And so I carry with me thousands, tens of thousands of stories that I will take to my grave from over the years of very painful stories about people's lives and things that they're dealing with, but they knew that they were safe. How did you keep those stories from informing your future decisions about those employees? You know, because it's always shaping a perception. Every story you hear shapes a perception to a degree, right? How were you receiving those stories and just taking them and letting it be a safe place instead of letting it inform future decisions across the board? Form decisions over the years as in terms of people are whole people. They come to work as a whole person. There's no such thing as someone coming to work devoid of what's going on at home. That's a line of thinking in corporate rhetoric that is untrue. It is impossible for people to do that. And so my reputation in the space was really positive because you don't have to pretend with me. If you had a rough morning with your husband or your wife and you're coming into my office, that's fine. Now it can't get in the way of the work, but you can also like say that, can we just take five minutes for a second? Sure, I don't care. Like I'll go grab a cup of coffee. You can have a moment, no big deal. And it's not gonna inform a future of, well, you're reactionary or you are- To let people be humans. That's so good. When you look back over those 20 years, Bethany, like, is there anything that you can point to that kind of contributed to your professional growth? What did you do to kind of feed a professional growth, not just positionally, but for you personally too? I will, I will try anything, anything. And so even when I became the vice president, (laughs) I'll never forget my boss came to me and She said, or before I became a vice president, she came to me and she said, we are about to do a series of acquisitions. There was hundreds of millions of dollars at the time. And I said, I've never, I've only done one acquisition in my life. And you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. I was a part of the acquisition of when Gap bought Athleta. Okay. And so she's like, I want you to lead it. I'm like, And so people who don't know what acquisition is, mergers and acquisitions, it's when one company buys generally a smaller company or relatively similar company, they merge together. They merge those companies together. And the company I was with was about to start a series of acquisitions. And she saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, but I did it. And that turned into um, one of the reasons why I was promoted to a senior vice president in my early 30s. It was because I was like, yeah, I'll give it a try. And what was supposed to be a couple of hundred million dollars turned into me helping build a billion dollar company. And so I was always willing to try and I wasn't afraid to fail. For you to personally not be afraid to fail, I think I, to a degree, I'm like, I can fail and that's fine. But I'm always thinking, what is the person above me going to think about this failure, right? Did that ever paralyze you at all? Did that ever make you second guess yourself of if this fails, there is, you know, a professional consequence, essentially, like if you had, if you had flopped on that merger and acquisition. So how did you move in confidence in that even with all the pressure and knowing this is a proving moment a little bit, you know? Well, one, one, I, me failing doesn't mean that I'm a failure. So there's a distinction between the two. And sometimes people do that. They, because I have failed or because I am failing, that makes me a failure. 
No, that doesn't. Failure is something that happens. It's not a person. The other thing is there are very few people who I care about their opinions. My boss at the time was one of them. And so I asked her what happens if I fail. Mm. And so if she, and she gave me the response and we talked about it and I was fine with the response, which means whatever everyone else thought, if I failed, didn't really matter to me. One, because their opinions didn't matter before. So they're not going to matter after. Mm. And so we have to also put in the work of deciding whose opinions we care about. Because I think that there's this armor we point out of like, oh, I don't care. Like, I don't care. No, you do care. You just need to care about the right things and the right people. And sometimes that can only be two people. Mm. It doesn't have to be 15. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I went into a season where I could only care about the opinion of one person in the entire organization because I was making such tough decisions so fast um, and in such close proximity to each other that had significant ripple effects. I could only focus on the opinion, view, and perspective of one person. Mm. Sometimes we get like, we like do a decision by consensus. And that is, that is crippling. It's Mm. mentally crippling and emotionally crippling. So before you, anyone, the royal you, start to make a big decision or if you're thinking about, am I going to fail? If I'm not going to fail, we, you actually have to be very strategic and calculate out whose opinion do I care about and why? And one of the answers could be, well, because there's a strategic advantage for me to care about this person's opinion. That's a valid, that is a valid answer. Well, that's what I was going to ask is how do you determine that? Because there's some strategic one. Like, I have to care about their opinion because my future, they will decide my future. Yep. And that is a reason. (laughs) Sometimes you say, well, I care about their opinion because they are someone who motivates and encourages me. That's a valid answer. But saying that, well, I care about someone's opinion just because, well, that's that, that you're allowing this person to be a potential derailer. And you don't know why. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. You said that there, this leader who was like, I'm going to tap on your shoulder to lead this. You said that she saw something in you that you did not see. And, yes. and that's what I, you've served with a lot of leaders, right? Like under them, over them. What did you most appreciate in that season about those who were leading you? And what made you want to stay somewhere versus, you know, what made you want to leave? So like when an offer came, you were like, yeah, I'm taking that, you know? So what, what did you identify as these are the traits that I want in a leader? Decisive decision-making, transparent conversation. So I want a decisive leader, which these are pretty consistent for what you would see in an effective leader anyway, but decisive decision-making, transparent uh, dialogue and self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I, I mean, I, when I became an SVP, the offers were coming in and I did not leave because at some point you decide that development is more important than progression. Okay. Lean into that because there's a lot of jumping. There's a lot of like, I don't feel good about this. So I'm out or I think I should be here instead. So I'm out lean into that, that statement right there, that development is more important than progression. So 
What you're talking about, which, you know, I would see all the time is they call it job hopping, where people feel as though they should be moving faster. They should, and generally there's a financial piece that's driving that, or they feel as though they deserve this progression for whatever reason. But they lack the development piece, the understanding of the job. And I'm just talking about the technical aspect. I'm talking about the emotional components that come with leading well. Mm. Right. The psychology that comes with leading well, the psychology that comes with and the emotional capacity that's needed when you have a greater scope of influence. No one really talks about that. Mm-hmm. Very like you get to a point in your career. Yes, you're always learning, but there is a point where you are able to do things kind of in your sleep a little bit because you just kind of know your technical space. But then there is this other part where because you're dealing with people and because you're dealing with money and because you're dealing with power dynamics, those are the things that make jobs significantly more difficult, Mm -hmm. especially as you kind of rise up the ladder. And this is in the entrepreneurial space or in the corporate space. And so what happens is people move really fast and they're not prepared. They're over their skis. So for people who ski, when you lean, when you lean forward too fast, too soon, you end up tumbling. And so I made a decision to focus on my developing, making sure my foundation was still solid, making sure that I understood all sides of all the aspects of the space that I was in, instead of going, well, I could say that I'm the successor at this big time tech company out in Silicon Valley, because those were the types of calls I've seen. Mm-hmm. Or I could be the head of HR for one of the major retail companies in the United States. And that was a mature decision to make. Because it's all appealing. It's like you said, I mean, it's just like to be able to say that this is what I do. Ego? Oh my gosh. Oh. Do you think, what do you think led to being able to make those mature decisions though, Bethany? Because I think it's easy and that's anybody at any age. You always have like your ego, right? Speaking in and being like, yeah, you want to say yes to this. It's an incredible opportunity. You'd be dumb not to. What for those young leaders who will in the future get great opportunities, how do you filter them? How do you know if it's time to move or time or you should stay? Well, there are a couple of things. One, I prayed about it. That's like, yeah. Just easy step number one. All right. Yeah. Step number one is you should pray about it. You should pray about these things. And, you know, trust what God is telling. Two, I had had enough situations over the course of my career where I had walked through doors that I wasn't supposed to walk through. That I had talked myself into like, oh, this is totally for me. And then been in the room and was like, oh my gosh, I should not be in here. And we live in a world where like, yes, you should absolutely fake it till you make it. You should be in here. But when you're in a boardroom, quote unquote, boardroom in a business meeting that you really shouldn't be in, that it's really over your head, that is one of the most terrifying feelings I have ever had. Did I figure it out? Yes. But there are tons of people who do not figure it out. And then they end up having conversations with people like me, maybe not immediately. But two years down the road, 
where it's like, oh my gosh, they were a rising star. And then they just kind of, they didn't deliver. They're inconsistent. Hmm. They don't, they don't appear to be able to get buy-in. They can't rally people around the vision. Well, generally when you hear things like that, or if people have told you that, it's because you're skipping, you skip the steps in development because you wanted to progress. I had a friend who he did some, some coaching and he talked a lot about view, voice and vote. And I think about a, a leader that was really developed me personally for a long time, but she would take me into big meetings, but not for me to have a voice or yeah. a vote in those meetings. Like yeah. I was not, yeah. the chat. I was there to just watch. Like I was there and I, in those couple of years where I would just go and sit and listen and learn, I had two great leaders in my life who really developed that in me of just like, they would let me hear conversations, not because my opinion was needed at any point, but because I was watching them navigate leadership, navigate these decisions. And if you are someone listening and you're like, well, I don't work in the corporate space, you can also do this in the home with your children. So I let my children hear my conversations that I have, whether it's with doctor's offices, whether it's with, with, you know, certain bills, whether it's, you know, business meetings, I let them hear how I lead our home as a single mother and how I show up in very frustrating conversations very kind of day-to-day conversations. I let them see all of that so that they learn how to develop their leadership voice. This is the leadership voice. It's not just for the business world. It's literally how you decide to command and control conversations in an effective way. You know, I was listening to a podcast the other day, Bethany, and, and he said, I think one of the hardest things for parents right now is you want to pluck your kids out of the hard stuff. You want to, you want to shield them from the hard conversation. But what you're saying is, no, this is teaching them how yeah. to do the hard. Like they don't. Yeah. There's, it's actually a book um, called Shadow of a Leader. So if you're into leadership books, that's one that, I mean, it's been out forever, but It's a good book. But if you think about your children, they mimic and mock what you do. So why not show them how to lead? Mm -hmm. Mm. You know, I'm seeing shifts and how that works and how that's done with the pandemic itself and how leaders are leading whole teams to do that. How are you seeing shifts? So I had a theory that I pressure tested and has continued to prove, be proven out as true, that there are three positions of leadership and you saw it show up in the pandemic. And I talked about it years ago in the corporate space. I talked about it only a little bit on the online space. So you can either lead from the front, the back, or side by side. And an effective leader determines based off of what's going on, what is the right position to lead? Do you lead from the back? Do you lead side by side? Or do you lead from the front? So front is saying, follow me. I know where we're going. Side by side is the ability to say, we're in this together and I'm kind of unsure. So that's a little bit of what you saw in the pandemic. Everyone was saying, I have never been here before. Mm -hmm. And a little bit of leading from behind is not servant leadership. It's sitting back and assessing and allowing people to lead on their own. And not having the white horse syndrome where you swoop in to fix everything. Mm. Mm -hmm. So what you see right now is a little bit of, which is slightly disheartening, 
a little bit of the, now we're jumping into leading from the front to take people back to where things were before. Well, we can't go back. We're not going back. People have already quit Mm -hmm. their jobs. We already went through the great resignation. You will have some people who are returning to work because they're realizing we can't do single income. Some people will say, I don't want to do the entrepreneurial thing. But you have a lot of leaders who are, okay, I'm going to the front now, follow me, but you're going to follow me back to the way. And people are resisting that. If that answers your question. It, it's, that's so good. I mean, even when you said the side by, like, I'm going to be sitting on this for a long time, Bethany. Like, no joke. Like, even the, the side artist, by side, it's just. The artist position is actually side by side. Well, and that's what I watch. I'll never forget the leader I was serving with in the pandemic where he just openly, it was vulnerable, but not overly vulnerable. You know, like I'm going to be honest with where I'm at and that this is hard. And I don't, I don't really know. I just, and he would always say, we're just putting stuff in pencil. We're just, we're putting it in pencil, knowing it can change at any moment, which is something I so valued about his leadership. But the part where you said, now you have leaders getting in the front and they're like, oh, we're going back to where we were. Everyone follow me. We want to circle back. And it's just not there anymore. It's not there. And people will not, People will not follow you back to a place that they don't want to go. Exactly. What do you do, though, in that circumstance, though, Bethany? Maybe you really love where you're at, but you keep running into I don't feel like you hear me or see me. Well, I have a, I always tell people to talk twice, have a conversation twice. Don't do it back to back days, y'all. Don't be like, well, I talked to you yesterday. I'm going to talk to you again. But you should always try to have that conversation twice of this is what this is what I'm seeing. This is what I need. This is what I'm looking for. And you can have it in a very non-confrontational way. This is what I need to be affected by job. And do you think the company can provide that? Not your boss. Don't make it personal to your boss. It's about the company. Because your boss is not the decision maker, even though he or she may want you to think that. It is the company. And so you have those conversations. If you don't get anywhere, you have two choices to make. Both choices cannot be reactive choices. You can choose to make a compromise on what you want, or you can leave. If you choose to leave, it does not need to be something that is immediate. It should be something that is calculated and you leave at the right time and don't leave before you leave, as Cheryl Stanberg said. Do not leave before you leave. But if you stay, you've decided to make a compromise on what you want, So you stay and you don't grumble and you don't complain and you stay. That's okay. Right there for just a second. The compromise, right? I mean, I've this, this could end up being like a two hour podcast. No joke. I just, we might have to do a full series because this, I love this kind of stuff because it's stuff that I wish I had known so much sooner. I mean, it's just, you you said compromise. And I just had a conversation this week with someone and, and she had just started a new job and she was like, it's just not what I thought it would be. And I just said, at every place, you're going to understand that you have to have a personal values of what's most important to you, what you need in a job and you need to rank them like one, two, and three, because guess what? You're probably not going to get all three at at one time. But if, if you get like your most important, then you have to decide the other ones are okay if they're not exactly what I thought. Correct. So when you say compromise, like how do you, and that was her question. She was like, how do I know it's not better somewhere else? How do I know if I should just compromise or go see what else is out there? Yeah. How do you have to compromise something 
And so you have to decide what you're not going to compromise on. And you have to also understand that it changes for you based off of the season that you're in. Good. Yes. And so no company is ever, what people have to understand is a job should not become fulfillment ever. Mm -hmm. That is the biggest mistake that people make. Now that may be an unpopular opinion. It shouldn't be the thing that completes you. Who you are. Exactly. Yeah. It should be who you are. So you should be able to kind of remove yourself from that. Well, well, because it's almost, it's similar to what you said of opinions. Like the moment that everyone's opinion in the arena matters, it's probably a good sign that what you're doing is now becoming who you are. Like it's, it's now signaling. So you should always position yourself in a way that you can walk away. So that if you get to a point where you're like, I'm not compromising anymore and walking away, that you don't feel like you're being held hostage. Like you've lost a piece of yourself, a big old exactly. chunk of yourself. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when I would have this conversation with people, it would be around things like work-life balance. So on the work-life balance, there are certain things that are required for a job in terms of the time that you have to put in, the season of what your peak time is with the job, et cetera. And there are times where that can change and times when it can't change. You have to decide whether or not you're willing to compromise for a season or long-term on what you think work-life balance looks like for you or work-life integration is what I like. How, how you integrate those together, what that looks like for you. And if you get into a job and you're like, I can't be here from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. because it's not good for my mental health, Mm. then leave the job. You know, I was talking to a a girl in my community group and she just got a promotion at her job, very much enjoys it. But now she's leading a team of people. And she was like, this is I kind of liked flying solo where like I didn't I wasn't responsible. And I'm like, I get that. Like, (laughs) it's so much easier. Right. But she said. I am constantly getting praised and celebrated when I respond to my superiors after hours. And she was like, but I don't want to respond to them after hours. But now I feel like I'm in this scenario where I have to because I've created an expectation. I mean, in that when you know it's going to win you points, but Bethany, you are, you're creating, you know, you always say start out as you mean to go. If you're starting out answering after, you know, like 6 p.m., but then on the flip side, you do get points for it. How do you, you know, you're talking about work-life balance, like you want to grow and move forward, but sometimes what it takes is maybe not what you want to give. What it, What about in those scenarios? So as my career progressed, the hours became longer. And so I had to figure out how to balance it all, which is where I say work and life integration. And so I actually made it clear to my team and I had over a hundred people from 5.30 to 8.15, I'm not available. People also have to have realistic expectations with the jobs that they have. Mm -hmm. For someone who is in a managerial role of any kind, manager, director, vice president, there are certain responsibilities that come with that. And there's certain types of cascading communication going up and down that come with that type of job. And so a boundary that I put in place, because I was in a position of power too, so I'm not like, I mean, I was the boss, so sure. I get to at the rules, but I also gave the people on my team permission to set rules. 
That is exactly what I was going to ask next, Bethany, is it gives you, it's a relief of like, okay, they told me they're not reaching out to me. And so it's like, so they will respect it. Yes. Yes. So then the other side of that is, so I, I communicated that to my entire team and told my leaders, I would also like for you to do that on your team. Then I communicated to my boss, what I had cascaded to my team. I said, Hey, these are the things I have going on. If you, and then there were like three other people ever call, I will always pick up. But so you're not surprised between 5.30 and 8 p.m. Because I'm a single mom. I mean, I didn't say all this to her, but I'm a single mom. I got a lot of stuff going on after. And by the way, I want to unplug the brain. I'm kind of going to not be staring at my phone. I've commu- And she was perfectly fine with that, which meant... If she ever heard, well, Bethany didn't respond to my email at 6 p.m., it was not, it was just kind of like, well, she's already kind of communicated that, you know, she's, she's not responsive and it's, if it's an emergency, blah, 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 blah. And it was never an issue. So you have to get in front of, you have to help people set the proper expectations that they may place on you. And it's exactly what I was, it's that precedent setting of like, if you do, you know, I think about this girl in my group, um, the, the leader was setting a precedent of you can expect me to reach out to you after mm-hmm. hours because I, I'm expecting you to respond. Mm-hmm. And so then you feel like, well, I have to respond. But if you flip that precedent and if the leader's like, if the leader says it to you, Hey, I'm not going to reach out to you between these hours because I want you to have that time. Then you don't feel like you need to hold your phone or your computer in front of you. You know, it's these precedents, like you telling your team, I'm not going to be available. So they're like, I can take a breath. I don't have to sit here and wait or wonder if you need something or feel the pressure. I had, so at that time I had a global team. So I had really, really odd sleeping hours, which means I also sent emails at two in the morning, 4.45. And I was very open with my team. I'm going to be sending emails all times of the night. I do not expect, nor do I want a response. That's the, because without that, then they feel like I should be working these hours too, you know? Exactly. And the burden is on the leader. The burden is always on the leader. And leaders might not want to hear it, but it, hey, this this is what comes with being in a position of authority. It is, it, it is that pressure of like, Everything you do or say a lot of times in some way is setting some sort of precedent, either intentionally or unintentionally. And an awareness, that self-awareness piece of like, what does this communicate on every level in all the layers? What does this communicate? And, and off of that too, you know, there are obviously a lot, the main demographic that listens is, is women. And a lot of women feel like they're hitting ceilings, Bethany. And when I hear the stories, I think, yeah, that is true. But sometimes it's not true. Sometimes I'm thinking, maybe you're not the best candidate. I don't know that it's you're hitting a ceiling, but maybe you're not getting this because of, you know, X, Y, or Z. How do you coach someone through, you know? So the tagline for my business is I help leaders see around corner. You, so yes, there is a ceiling. It, it exists. It exists in most organizations. It doesn't necessarily mean that you can't kick it in with your heel. I did it repeatedly over the course of my career. And there are a couple of ways to do that depending on the culture of your organization and how it breathes. There are also instances where 
you are not the best candidate and no one is willing to tell you. Mm-hmm. Which generally happens 70% of the time. So people will say things of, well, we're still kind of going through the process. We're not really sure right now. We're betting a lot of people. You're such a hard worker. It just people have more qualities and then you ask, or better qualities, and then you ask, well, what more do I need to work on? Really, there isn't. You're just, you're doing a really great job. Usually in those situations, it's because the other people have deeper, stronger relationships with those people making the decision. Mm. No one's going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you that. Mm. (laughs) Let me be the first. You're welcome. Let me, let me be the first. And so this is where mentorship is important, but having an advocate in the meeting after the meeting. Mm -hmm. So people, women will, okay, I need a mentor to help me navigate the organization. Well, you having a mentor is great. But if that mentor can't be an advocate in the decision making for you, that's a, that's a, is of no benefit Mm -hmm. to you at all. It could be of a benefit. I shouldn't say at all. It could be a benefit to you from a development perspective. And as you're trying to like grow in leadership and in your technical space, it's not necessarily a benefit to you when they're trying to make a decision around promotion, lateral movement, because the person's not in the room. Mm. So if you're looking for an advocate and if you want to be strategic about your mentors, you need to go two levels up. That's good. Right? Because those are the people who are making the who are making decisions in the meeting after the meeting. I always tell people focus on who's in the meeting after the meeting. That's always the most there's and and I think some people talk about the meeting after the meeting like it's uh, a bad all the thing. Habits. Hey, but it's- when everybody is told to leave mm-hmm. and then there are five of us that are still there. Yeah. What about though people talk about it though, Bethany, because I've been in the meetings after the meetings, right? And they're not bad things. It's literally just like we're unpacking and figuring out the way forward based on the previous meeting. But a lot of times I've heard and listened to opinions where, hey, meetings after the meetings are bad things. They are, you know, bad for culture. Is that? They're not bad for culture at all. It's safe spaces for, um, it's safe. It's a safe space for transparent conversations for leaders to have who have to own the decisions. Mm-hmm. And so it, sometimes the meeting after the meeting has nothing to do with people. That is so good. You really just flipped my whole perspective because I was like, well, maybe it is a bad thing. But what you just said, it's a safe space to have transparent conversations for the leaders who have to own the decisions because we miss that a lot. When the decision impacts us, we forget someone's responsible for it. Someone more than I will ever have to be accountable. Someone else is way more accountable to that decision. Way more accountable. And, you know, when... When you're thinking about what goes on within business, again, big business, small business, it's a chess game. Always. You have to learn how to play chess. And people are like, I don't know how to play chess. What I mean by that is two or three steps ahead and not in, and and don't be, I'm not talking about being manipulative. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being very calculated about your relationships being calculated about who you are aligned to 
Proximity matters. Oh, the amount that I have learned from just proximity, Beth, mm-hmm. just residual things, just from proximity. Good and bad. Mm-hmm. And I have, I have gone toe to toe with leaders because they're like, this person is great. I'm like, why? They're like, well, because, you know, they work with such and such. I'm like, what? but why does that make them great? And so I'm not even saying it's always a bad thing or a good thing, but I'm just saying proximity matters. So back to the mentor and advocacy, those things are huge and people don't understand how to leverage those appropriately in the business world and in the business space. And it trips them up so that everyone's like, I need to get a mentor. And I'm like, no, you need an advocate or a sponsor. Mm. You need someone who can actually influence the decisions that are made. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you getting a mentor who's a peer, that they can't influence anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You being a mentor who's in a completely different department and it's not a part of the talent discussions that are going on in your organization is not. A, it's not going to help you. Not going to help you. You need a rounded board of directors. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is so, that's so good. I mean, I can keep going, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to ask you the last question so we can start wrapping up. And I mean, by gosh, we might have to have another one. For those coming behind us, Bethany, just like any final words of like, hey, keep this in mind. I mean, we touched on this a little bit, but wherever you are as a leader, like on your journey, Self-awareness, emotional intelligence, self-awareness and emotional intelligence and your ability to make decisive decisions are connected to those two. Mm -hmm. Your ability to understand how you impact people when you enter a room with how you communicate. is a really big deal. Mm -hmm. Your ability to adjust your emotions and to know how you show up and influence people in a positive way says a lot about your ability to lead effectively. Mm-hmm. Not just lead, but lead effectively. Mm-hmm. Not just in an organization, but within your relationships. Leading yourself. Mm-hmm. Forcing yourself to get back to center, back to a place of clarity. Can you do that for yourself? Or you can do it for anybody else. Can you lead yourself? Mm, that's you yourself so look to the mirror of accountability be like you know what what i did was wrong it's so i'm going to pull my whole team together and your team might be your family and i'm going to apologize mm-hmm. oh it goes so far it goes so far hey final tools anything that you're like hey read this listen to this any place that you direct people who want to grow i always say if you want to grow as a leader there are two things to read. One's going to sound a little odd. Maybe. I'll save that one for last. The first one is the Harvard Business Review. Read it. I think their past articles are free, but if you're looking for something to subscribe to, Harvard Business Review. There's also, well, there'll be, there's a third. Let me add another one. There's an app called Masterclass. It's a phenomenal app download it the subscription the year subscription is like 125 dollars, but you are literally able do you know what i'm talking about yes i do it's It's amazing it's phenomenal you are literally able to listen to other leaders entrepreneurs ceos talk about their craft and just listen Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. listen that's it you can just listen which is the best way to learn 
is is learning from other people's mistakes yeah. and you, not making them on your own. And then the third is read the book Proverbs. That's the odd one. The, the book that I have consistently reached for over the course of my leadership career or the course of my career and developing as a leader is the book of Proverbs. And lead it, read it with a leadership lens. Mm-hmm. That makes it. But is, now, I didn't expect it, but it makes so much sense. It was written by a king. My king. It makes so much sense, Bethany. You just like that brain of yours. You got a lot in it, and I got to keep. I got a lot out. in it. Oh, oh my god. Maybe two. No, there's no way. We're just gonna have to have like a forty part series because I just feel like I gotta keep. I gotta keep pulling it out. <laughs> But thank you so much for jumping back in with us. Thank you for the way that you believe in people, for the way you want to invest in people and bring them up behind you. It's just, it's so good. Thank you for jumping in with us. Thank you for having me.